evidence and answers. If there is a God out there, why 2,000 useless galaxies? Why is the universe so massive and so much useless space? Why does the universe have to be so old? Why is the universe the way it is? These are some questions critics ask about the makeup of our universe. Most of us just have no answers for such questions. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today's teaching is taken from the 2023 Evidence and Answers Apologetics Conference. Pat hosts this conference each year and brings out Christians, scientists, and scholars from across the country. Today, astrophysicist Dr. Hugh Ross answers these questions and more in his seminar, Why the Universe is the Way It Is. This is a fascinating seminar, and you'll surely enjoy it. Now, to begin part one, is Dr. Hugh Ross. Well, as I mentioned last night, reasons to believe that something my wife and I founded uh, 37 years ago. It's an apologetics ministry, but it's predominantly for the purpose of evangelism. We only do that apologetics which has proven value in bringing people to faith in Christ, especially people who have no background in Christian faith. That's our mission. Now, the two chapters in the Bible that really give you the theology of evangelism is 1 Peter 3 and 1 Peter 4. But I'm just going to focus on one verse, and it's 1 Peter 3.15. It's the best known of those two chapters, but again, I commend you, read both the entirety of both chapters. But 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. And uh, before I launched Reasons to Believe, I was an evangelism pastor uh, at a church between Caltech and the Jet Propulsion Laboratory and the headquarters of the Skeptic Society. We have a very interesting group of people that come into our church. But the whole focus here is being prepared to give good reasons that you may need, but especially the people you're engaging need. So be prepared. And that's kind of our mission at Reasons to Believe, is to give you the tools so that you will be prepared to answer the questions that you get from your non-Christian friends and associates, but to do it with gentleness and respect because non-believers will listen more intently to your demeanor than they do your apologetics arguments. The two need to go together. Now, what I've learned over the 40 plus years of my ministry is that if you will prepare good, sound reasons for your faith and hope in Jesus Christ and are able to deliver them with gentleness and respect, you will see God supernaturally bringing people to you that in advance he is prepared to hear and respond to your good reasons. A book of Acts is filled with these kinds of stories, but the book of Acts is not over. It's still going on today. And many of us have had the experience of seeing God performing these miracles where he brings people to you. Now, I travel a lot on airplanes, and I get to have conversations with people on airplanes. I mean, if it's a several-hour flight, what are people going to do? Uh, but what I've noticed in all of my experiences in airplanes, over half the conversations I have with people in airplanes are those with doctoral degrees in science or doctoral degrees in theology. 
And you and I both know that doesn't make up 50% of the flying U.S. public. And I have a friend who uh, you know, was part of the Mormon faith and became a Christian. Like me, he flies a lot. But who does he get to sit beside? He gets to sit beside Mormons and people who have left the Mormon faith. And so God gives them opportunities. God knows who I am. He knows who the people are. He works miracles to bring us together. And I'm going to share one story that I'm going to wrap around my message about why the universe is the way it is. And I got on this airplane, and it was one of these situations where they needed to seat a family, so they changed my seat, and they gave me a first-class seat. So I'm sitting in first class, and then this gentleman sits down beside me, introduces himself, and he says, I'm from Germany, I'm a quantum physicist, and I'm an atheist. And apparently, that's fairly typical of uh, German scholastics, that that's how they introduce themselves to people. So he says, who are you? And I says, well, I'm not a quantum physicist. I'm an astrophysicist, and I'm not from Germany. I'm from Canada. I'm not an atheist. I'm a Christian. And he says, this is going to be an interesting flight. <laughs> so he said, do you mind if I ask you some questions? And, you know, it's a several-hour flight, and we're in first class. It's quiet. And so he begins his uh, questions, and he says, Number one, if there's a God out there, I can see why he would want to have a star like the sun, a planet like the earth, maybe the moon, but why two trillion useless galaxies? Why? Why does the universe have to be so incredibly big and so incredibly massive? Why is the universe so very massive? And I says, well, the universe's mass actually determines the makeup of its elements. And so uh, the universe begins with only one element in the periodic table, hydrogen. But the universe starts off infinitesimally small and nearly infinitely hot. But as it expands from the cosmic creation event, the temperature of the universe cools down. It gets cooler and cooler. And the temperature region where nuclear fusion occurs is between 150 million and 17 million uh, degrees uh, centigrade. That's where hydrogen gets fused into helium. And if you make the universe less massive than what it is, it will expand so rapidly from the cosmic creation event, it only spends a few seconds or less in that temperature region, in which case not much of the primordial hydrogen gets fused into helium. And now you've got stars that just have a huge amount of hydrogen, a tiny amount of helium, and in that case, they're unable in their nuclear furnaces to fuse anything heavier than lithium, which means you have a universe that forever has no carbon, no oxygen, no nitrogen, no phosphorus, and no possibility for life. And you say, well, what happens if you make the universe slightly more massive? And I say, well, if you make the universe uh, slightly uh, more massive uh, than it is, by the way, this is what you'd have if the universe is a little bit less massive than it is, you would have a periodic table with hydrogen and helium. It sure would make passing a chemistry class easy, <laughs> but there'd be no chemistry class because there'd be no possibility for life. And if you make the universe slightly more massive, uh, what happens is the universe now, instead of spending just a few seconds uh, in the temperature window where fusion can occur, uh, will spend more than 20 seconds. And if it's more than 20 seconds, so much of that primordial hydrogen is fused into helium that when future stars form, 
they very quickly convert all of the matter of the universe into elements heavier than manganese, iron and heavier. And in that universe, you also have no carbon, no oxygen, no nitrogen, and no phosphorus. And to get the life, you need to have the universe spending about 20 seconds in that temperature window. Well, the question this quantum physicist asks is, well, okay, I can see that it has to be fine-tuned. What is the degree of fine-tuning? I said, well, if you were to change the total mass of the universe by one part in a quadrillion, 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 there'd be no carbon, no oxygen, no nitrogen, and no possibility for life. And he just is kind of blown away. The cosmic mass density, or even the tiniest fraction, greater or smaller, no life would be possible anytime, anywhere in the universe. And he said, well, I know the universe is old. How old do you astronomers think the universe is? He said, well, we're trying to measure it with greater and greater precision. The best we've been able to do so far is 13.79 billion years, plus or minus 0.04 billion. And he said, well, that's fairly accurate, but tell me, why does it have to be that old? And so well, here's the problem. If we were created any later or earlier, we would not be able to witness the cosmic creation event. In other words, if God put us here on planet Earth in less time than 13.79 billion years after the cosmic creation event, light from the cosmic creation event would not have adequate time to travel on the space surface of the universe and reach our telescope, which means we wouldn't be able to look back, look far away, and directly witness the universe being created. And he says, well, what happens if it's any later? And I says, well, already dark energy is expanding the farthest reaches of the universe at barely under the velocity of light. And dark energy is accelerating the expansion of the universe. Next year is going to expand more rapidly than it has this year, which means it won't be long before the farthest reaches of the universe are expanding away from us at greater than the velocity of light, which means that we would be unable to witness the cosmic creation event. So we humans are here in the history of the universe at the one time where we could read the whole history book of the universe, from the present all the way back to the very beginning. And it's our ability to use our telescopes to directly observe, directly witness the universe being created where we get our most rigorous and compelling scientific evidences that there must be a God beyond space and time that created the universe. So what I was suggesting to my quantum physicist friend, do you think somebody wanted us to read the whole book and not just part of the book? And I actually got to explain to him, it's not just that we're the only time. He says, well, maybe this is just a sheer coincidence. And I said, well, here's the other thing. We are living in the only location in this vast universe of two trillion galaxies where every galaxy has got about a hundred billion stars. And the vastness of this universe, we're sitting on the only planet where intelligent life is possible and at the same time we can look out and see a hundred percent of the history of the universe. It's not just that we're the only time in the history of the universe, we're also in the only location. Do you think somebody wanted us to be able to read the whole book? Okay, only at 14 billion years after the cosmic creation event can humans observe all of cosmic history and directly witness the cosmic creation event. But I'll give you another reason why we're here at 13.79 billion years after the cosmic creation event. 
In order to have advanced life on planet Earth, we need strong, enduring plate tectonic activity. We also need a strong, enduring magnetic field. And one of the energy sources, one of the more important energy sources that ensures that we have that enduring strong magnetic field and enduring strong plate tectonic activity is thorium and uranium. These are radioisotopes. And our planet Earth is the thorium champion of the universe. It has 630 times as much thorium as we would expect in any other rocky body in the universe. We're also the uranium champion of the universe, 340 times as much uranium as what we'd expect in other rocky bodies in the universe. And there's several reasons why we have such a rich store of uranium and thorium. Where do uranium and thorium come from? They're exclusively produced uh, by supernova eruption events and by neutron stars merging together to make black holes. And, uh, you know, when the universe is relatively young, it's aggressively producing more and more stars, and the stars begin to burn out, and the star formation begins to subside. What this implies is there will be a time in the history of the universe where the uranium and thorium abundance is at a peak. When is that peak? That peak is when the universe is about a little more than 9 billion years old. That's when thorium and uranium hit a peak abundance. Well, when did Earth form? Earth formed about 4.5 billion years ago. Take 13.8, subtract 4.5 from it, what do you get? A little more than 9 billion years. Planet Earth formed at the moment in the history of the universe when the concentration of uranium and thorium was at a maximum. However, you don't want to have humans at that point. Why? Because when the Earth forms, the Sun is also very young. The Earth and the Sun form at virtually the same time. And as I mentioned Thursday night to the audience I addressed, stars are a lot like human beings. They're unstable when they're young, they're unstable when they're old. They're maximally stable when they're middle-aged. And the case of stars, the window when they're stable is not like us human beings. We're stable for most of our lifespan. For stars, it's a lot briefer than that. So, for example, we're orbiting the most stable star that we can see anywhere in the universe, but it's quite unstable when it's young and it will become much more unstable when it's old. And uh, so this shows the flaring activity of our star, the Sun. It also shows the level of uh, ultraviolet and X-ray and gamma-ray radiation. It's the same curve. And uh, what you see on the Y-axis is logarithmic. So, for example, in the first half billion years of the sun's existence, its flaring activity was about 100,000 times greater than it is today, which explains why you don't have microbes until that half billion years is over. They can't survive the solar radiation. But the moment that the sun becomes stable enough to permit microbes, we immediately have microbes. There's no delay. They show up right away. The origin of life is an instantaneous event. But the solar flaring activity does not reach a minimum until the sun is four and a half billion years old. So this is why you want to have humans here on planet Earth four and a half billion years after you get that uranium thorium maximum. And you add the two together and you get, you know, 13.8 billion years. Incidentally, it also coincides with several other things that we need for advanced civilization. So for example, what geologists have discovered there's a moment in the history of the earth 
where mineable coal, oil, and natural gas hits a maximum. We're living at that maximum point. If we were here any earlier, we would have less coal, oil, and natural gas to pull out the ground. If we were here any later, the bacteria would be degrading that coal, oil, and natural gas. We're here on planet Earth at that maximum moment. If you get my book, Why the Universe is the Way It Is, I show you another dozen things that line up right at 13.8 billion years. Well, my quantum physicist friend on the airplane said, okay, that, that's good, but tell me, you know, the universe is filled with dark stuff. There's dark matter, there's dark energy. And I said, yeah, you're right. The universe is predominantly dark stuff. And he said, well, there's a God behind all this stuff. Wouldn't he want everything to be seen? And you know, why is the universe so incredibly dark? And I says, well, you're right. The universe is predominantly made up of dark stuff. So, for example, we've got dark energy, which makes up about 70% of all the stuff of the universe. You've got exotic dark matter. That's matter made up of particles that don't engage strongly with light. That makes up about uh, 23 to 24% of all the stuff of the universe. Then you've got ordinary dark matter. Matter made up of protons, neutrons, and electrons, but they don't emit light. And that's about 4.4% of the total stuff of the universe. When you look through a telescope and you see all those galaxies and stars and nebulae, you're only looking at 0.27% of all the stuff of the universe. But I was able to share with my quantum physicist friend in the airplane that quantity of dark stuff must be exceptionally fine-tuned. Not just the quantity of dark energy, but the quantity of dark matter, the quantity of ordinary matter, all the different kinds of dark um, stuff need to be exquisitely fine-tuned. As I mentioned uh, last night, just the dark energy must be fine-tuned to better than one part in 10 to the 122nd power. The dark matter to better than one part in 10 to the 60th power. Same thing true of the quantity of ordinary dark matter. It all must be exquisitely fine-tuned. And I said, you know, this doesn't just argue for a deistic god. It argues for a theistic God. Again, if you were here last night, I shared the fact that the very best human engineering achievement we've ever pulled off is the invention, design, and manufacture of gravity wave telescopes. There's now three of them around the world. But the fine-tuning we see in the dark stuff exceeds the very best example of what we human beings have been able to pull off by a factor of a trillion, 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 trillion times. Now, no one would say that we humans are not personal beings. We are personal beings. I don't know of any philosopher or scientist who would dispute that. But what dark stuff is telling us is that the creator of the universe has a degree of personality that's far, far greater than anything that any human being can possibly manifest. As I mentioned last night, we're talking 10 to the 96 times minimum, more intellect, more knowledge, more power, more creativity and more care and love than we human beings are able to manifest. Well, the question that my quantum physicist friend in the airplane really was bothering me, he says, look, if there's a God out there, he sure seems to have imposed a lot of suffering on life and humanity in particular. I mean, we live in a universe that's just dominated by entropy. That's how physicists talk. What we mean there is decay. The universe is governed by a very high degree of decay. Second law of thermodynamics, maybe you've heard of Murphy's Law. 
how everything uh, gets more disordered with respect to time. And my quantum physicist friend said, you know, I can think of some reasons why you want to have thermodynamics, but why so much of it? If there's an all-powerful, all-loving God out there, why is he subjecting us to such an incredible high degree of decay, of uh, disorder uh, in our life? Why is the universe decaying so much? And so I began my response by saying, well, God has actually designed the laws of physics for the very eradication of what you're complaining about. You know, there's an all-powerful God out there. Why is there so much evil and suffering? So that's why we have the laws of physics. That's why we have thermodynamics. That's why we have entropy. They've all been created and designed by God so that he can quickly and efficiently eradicate all evil and suffering and actually grant to human beings who are willing to be redeemed from their sin and evil and to have their free will capability of experiencing and expressing love enhanced. And it tells us, for example, in Romans 1, the whole creation has been groaning under its bondage to decay. The entire universe is subject to this pervasive law of decay. So from one end of the universe to the other, from one moment of its beginning until now, it's been subject to this bondage to decay. Ecclesiastes 1 and 10 through 12 says everything decays. Everything we can see in the universe is decaying. And the rate of decay never stops. There's not a place where you can say, well, let's just put a stop to the decay. You know, people try to do that with special skin products, but it really doesn't work. You can't <laughs> stop the decay. Uh, you can try to do something about the appearance of decay, but underneath all that stuff you put on your skin, the decay just keeps going. It never stops. I'm sorry. <laughs> The law of decay is optimal for allowing the formation of stars and planets. That's one thing my quantum physicist friend was able to discover, or accept. If you don't have entropy, if you don't have a pervasive law of decay, stars and planets won't even form. And if you want life, you have to have stars and planets, and therefore you have to have some level of decay uh, just to get the stars and planets forming. And as an astronomer, I was able to explain to him, these stars and planets cannot form unless the rate of decay is extremely high. It must be higher than any rate of decay we can measure here on Earth. The highest rates of decay that we can see in science are in the cosmos, uh, not here on planet Earth. But they must be that high for stars and planets even to form. And when we come down to planet Earth, we need an extremely high level of decay for plants to be able to produce the food that we eat and for animals to be able to digest the food. I mean, for example, when you take food in, we're basically using that food, burning it, to produce energy that we can produce for work. But it's at an extremely low level of efficiency. It has to be in order for us to build a... You don't want too much heat in your stomach, for example. Uh, so we need these very high level rates of decay. But it says, what I find really interesting, the optimal level of decay we need in the universe to get stars and planets and plants and for animals to be able to consume the food that plants uh, provide so that we can efficiently uh, perform work. The optimal level of decay there is identical to the optimal level of decay we need to restrain evil as efficiently as possible and to be able to prepare humans for their ultimate roles in the new creation. Now, I was able to share with them my testimony how I wasn't raised in a Christian home and, but I began to study the different religions of the world. 
and how only in Christianity do we have a two-creation religion, where God creates the universe, the first creation, as a tool in God's hands to eradicate all evil and suffering. Then there's a new creation, once evil and suffering been eradicated, where he takes redeemed humans and the righteous angels where they will dwell forever. And it's a realm uh, where evil will never be experienced again. But to me, the amazing thing is, God has designed the physics of the universe in such a way that not only is evil and suffering eradicated, the free will capability of human beings is enhanced so that we can experience a far greater degree of love and express love in the new creation than anything that's possible in this creation. Our time for today has come to a close. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Would you or your church be interested in having Pat speak or host an apologetics conference? Just give him a call. In Hawaii, that number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. And while you're there on our website, take a look around. We have a wide variety of different topics that will make for an incredible conference series. Use our search engine for available resources. We have everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio free to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous financial support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to partner with us, you can find a link to donate on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucaran. Hey.